the pod class is in session. I'm your host, Jamie Anderson, and today we're talking with Lauren Alston about the importance of GSAs, or Gay Straight Alliances, and the role that they play in a healthy school community. Before we begin our conversation today, I would like to situate ourselves within the land and, of course, within the historical present. Lauren and I are connecting across what are now known as the Treaty 6 and Treaty 7 territories, and these are the traditional and ancestral territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Iehe Nakoda, Sutena, Cree, Dene, Soto, Nakoda Sioux, and the Métis Nation. Dr. Alex Wilson, a two-spirit scholar and professor at the University of Saskatchewan, writes that colonization has advanced itself through a steady attack on the lands, bodies, cultures, identities, and ways of being of Indigenous peoples. When we're coming into our conversation today, it's important to trace, of course, the present to its layered histories. Gender-based violence was a primary tool of systemic violence towards and genocide of Indigenous peoples throughout colonization, and this uh, unfortunately remains very true in the present. While colonizers worked to upend the matriarchal organization of many Indigenous communities, they also targeted those who did not fit within the gender binary, working to erase their historied existence and value within Indigenous communities. Indigenous resistance to the normative genders and sexualities that were enforced by early colonizers is accounted for in the oral histories of Indigenous peoples in North America, and the scholarship is catching up to those oral histories as well. Dr. Wilson writes that just as long as colonization has advanced itself, Indigenous peoples, including their lands, bodies, cultures, identities, and ways of being, have just as steadily resisted and persisted. So as we're engaging in our conversation today about supports for gender and sexually diverse youth, we want to recognize that a lot of what it is that we know now about gender and sexual diversity is not new knowledge, but rather it can be traced to knowledges and ways of knowing that have existed on Turtle Island well before colonization. And further to that, as we recognize the lineage of queer resistance or or resistance and resilience through homophobia and transphobia in and outside of school settings, we want to also trace that to the anti-colonial Indigenous resistance that has been on Turtle Island, again, since colonization as well. So we want to think about this through a lens of decolonizing and just recognize the ways in which our conversation today is situated in the historied land and how we can make those connections to Indigenous ways of knowing as we honour the land and the land and water protectors, the cultural and language protectors who have come before us and who will come after us. So with that in mind, I just want to remind folks that as you're listening to us on this podcast, you can feel free to Take time to tend to your well-being, whether that's going for a walk, doing the dishes, enjoying some time in the sunshine, whatever that looks like, we encourage you to pursue well-being while you listen and learn uh, in our conversation today. So to get us started, I'm going to invite our guest, Lauren, to please share some of your go-to habits for taking care of your own well-being. Awesome. Hi, thank you for having me. To take care of my own well-being, I definitely go towards playing music. I'm fortunate to play in a band with some really great friends. So I get to play some synth keyboards. So that's always a nice way to ground myself and also connect with other folks and in a really cool um, 
kind of artistic way. I also enjoy playing basketball, team sports. I guess I'm, I'm a fan of team things, but then again, I also like gardening. So I think connecting with the land, even just situated outside my my home that I'm, I'm lucky to live in. So uh, I like I like to do those things that kind of connect me to people um, and then also to the earth and, and growing, whether it's flowers or vegetables. That's that's sort of my jam. Fantastic. I was going to try and make a pun about your jam and then being in a, in a band, but I <laughs> oh, lost it. So. <laughs> oh, I lost opportunity. That's love that. Yeah, oh, that's okay. <laughs> All kinds of jams. <laughs> There you go. Multiple jams. Awesome. Um, Thank you so much for being here. We're really excited to have you. Uh, So just for the folks who are listening, you're currently a PhD candidate at the University of Alberta in psychological studies and education. And your research is focused on school-based 2S LGBTQ plus resources in urban and rural Alberta. So we first met actually a few years ago. And when we met, you were the provincial GSA coordinator. And your full-time job was basically working across Alberta, supporting students and teachers with these school-based LGBTQ two-spirit supports. So I'm wondering if you can share with us, why is this work important to you? And what has kind of led to this trajectory from engaging with youth to then moving into kind of more of a research role around GSAs? That is a really good question. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I was really, it was really awesome to meet with you and many other teachers and community members and students when I had the privilege to be the provincial GSA coordinator. And um, I know it sounds kind of cheesy when I say that position changed my life, but it it really did. It, it was um, a, a wonderful position to be in, in terms of being able to travel around and connect with folks and really do the on the ground work. So I was privileged to travel all over the province, um, mostly actually in treaties six, seven, and eight, because I would travel to communities that asked me to come there. So I would just show up. Originally, I had you know been doing work with 2SLGBTQ plus youth for quite a few years, either in a voluntary capacity or short contracts with um, programs like Firefly in Schools or the CHU Project or Camp Firefly. So when I started working full-time as the Provincial GSA Coordinator, this was a position out of the Institute for Sexual Minority Studies and Services at the University of Alberta. So I've just been at the U of A for ages. (laughs) But I was really able to fully immerse myself in the GSA work. Um, And I know we stated earlier, people most most commonly understand GSA to mean Gay-Straight Alliance, but I want to shout out all of the awesome students who um, say that the acronym represents so many more words than that, like Gender and Sexuality Alliance or Sexual Orientation Alliance. They've got their you know, QSA, so sometimes it's Queer Straight Alliance, Pride Club, Rainbow Club. So students always say, like, remember to tell people, like, GSA means more than just that. But using the common acronym is just sort of more accessible for people. So when I talk about GSA, and I know when we talk about GSA, we mean kind of any one of those clubs with the various awesome names, even just like one of the clubs was named Skittles Club. And I thought that was just awesome. So basically, I got to start and create the Alberta GSA network when I was in that provincial coordinator position. And I got to meet with so many community groups and youth and teachers, elders, parents, and I was able to travel all around from Fort Chip to St. Paul, Dunmore, Edson, Moscow Cheese, High Prairie, Wainwright, so many amazing communities. 
And really working with the students who were starting up GSAs or school districts wanted to kind of get resources or get their district-wide staff members educated about what GSAs are, how to support students, because students were way ahead. They were like, we need these supports. And lots of teachers would say, I don't know what that means. So part of my job was just going around and being like, okay, so listen to your students and this is how you can do that. And these are some tips or these are some resources from the Alberta Teachers Association or local organizations throughout the province that can help you in getting to the level of your of your students and also being able to be that support and you know even just create a space for a meeting time or help with organizing, you know, whatever the students want to do. So basically throughout my time, it was a really interesting period to be traveling around because we had the bill 10, bill 24. So those those bills that were changing the legal parameters of GSAs um, and, and basically changing the education slash school act, we kind of bounced back and forth between those. <laughs> I won't even go into that because that's dry and boring. But if you want to talk bills and laws, then we can chat later. So basically, we had all these bills changing. And what I was running into was teachers saying like, what are my rights or what am I supposed to do? Wait, what are the laws now? And then parents were confused about it. Students were confused about it. And then when students were confused about it, they didn't want to go to their GSA. So kind of ruined the whole point of creating these spaces um, that were supposed to be safe, supportive environments for students just to like navigate their lives and have fun with their friends. So throughout all this time, it kind of became a big debate and misinformed people were yelling loudly about what GSAs were and weren't. And so what I heard a lot was teachers and parents and and school district folks were saying like, it'd be really nice to have some, some kind of information about Alberta specific GSAs, like what's going on in them, um, what are students experiencing? And even though some students were reaching out and they're super brave to talk to the media, I think the voices of the youth weren't really as prevalent or focused on as the voices of people opposing GSAs who had never even been to a GSA. So all this to say, I was hearing a lot of like, we need, you know, buzzwords like evidence-based got tossed around a lot and policymakers like, I understand it's really helpful to have some tangible statistics and Alberta-based stuff. And we're actually, as a province, in a quite a unique situation where all of these laws have been changing constantly. We've had so many bills and now we have Bill 8, which came about in 2019 under the UCP government. And so that even changed the parameters of uh, the, the legality around GSAs. So all of this stuff, it was, it's just, it's very confusing everybody. I mean, even it's pretty much my whole focus is to understand this and it's still pretty tricky. So basically all of this is going on and I'm like, wow, it'd be really nice to have this information. But then also funding was precarious for the Alberta GSA network. And then the Alberta GSA coordinator position ended at the end of 2018 And so I was like, oh, oh, dang it. What do I do? (laughs) Like, how do I keep doing this? I have folks I've been working with who are like, please don't stop doing this work. And I'm like, how do I not? So what I decided to do was just leverage my academic background. So I have a master's in neuroscience. So more like that research piece. And then I have my bachelor's in psychology. So I was like, oh, I could really use what I've learned, you know, with these degrees and leverage that into a PhD where I can continue doing this work and maybe acquire some of that data um, per se or, or, or talk to the youth and be able to compile it in a way that's helpful, not only to policymakers and lawmakers, but to future GSAs, to teachers, to school boards, to parents and all that stuff. So that's basically how I kind of rolled into starting a PhD 
in 2019. And it's super important to me because, I mean, I may have been out of schools because the position no longer existed, but students were still in schools. Students were still battling homophobia, transphobia, all of this stuff in their school districts. And and so I think it's like, we can't just stop. I couldn't just stop. And so I was really lucky I could figure out a way to continue doing this. And now I'm finally back meeting with, with students through my research. And it's just like, that is, again, as I said before, my jam. <laughs> I have lots of jams. Lots of oh, that's fantastic, Lauren. Thank you for sharing. I, I mean, that I think that's so interesting for you to be like traveling around the province and see, despite all of the very different uh, contextual and community kind of environments, what those needs were and how policies were impacting the lived experiences of the children, youth, teachers, and schools that you were working with. Uh, and I think I would concur. Yeah, the political landscape is really complicated in Alberta with all of these new bills. And I think even more so, like you said, we can't stop doing this work. And that's super important in Alberta, where we've seen Bill 8 kind of roll back some of those rights that GSAs were given in schools previously. But nevertheless, not to dwell in that space too much, you spoke about a few things. Like I think you mentioned the lack of research in Alberta. I think there's so much research about GSAs that comes from the U.S. Even EGAL Canada has done some more nationwide research, but there's certainly uh, missing pieces when it comes to research in Alberta. Uh, we know the first high school GSAs were established in the late 1980s in the U.S., even though ad hoc queer support groups have, have certainly been around for much longer. I think in Alberta, I don't even remember it. I think it was in yeah, Red Deer, Lindsay Thurber um, High School. Lindsay Thurber High School, the very first GSA, I want to say in the 1990s, so about probably a decade or more behind mm-hmm. the U.S., you spoke about the name Gay Straight Alliances and where that comes from. I wanted to share this just because I learned it. The first GSA in the U.S., the first formal GSA, was actually created by straight students to support a gay teacher who had kind of been outed and was experiencing homophobia. So that idea of the gay-straight alliance uh, comes from that kind of context. But as you mentioned, language has changed. Um, and, and in the decades since, we've we've seen a shift in kind of our understanding and knowledge and how we talk about and conceptualize gender identities, sexual orientation, um, and all of those pieces in the in the school space. And you've already provided a, a lot of information about what GSAs are supposed to do or, or supposed to be in, in kind of the Alberta context. I'm wondering if you can tell us more about generally what GSAs are and the role that they play in kindergarten to grade 12 schools. Yeah, there is a ton of amazing research out there. Definitely a lot of it in the US. And some of it actually um, in Canada, a lot of it is in BC and um, Ontario with a sprinkling here in Alberta. But yeah, it's it's a specific and unique area, I believe. And I think from my experience from reading many, many papers, the vast majority of GSA research comes from urban or densely populated areas. And so that is not necessarily reflective of the experience of, let's say, youth in, in smaller towns throughout Alberta. So I think really focusing on that is key, but I won't, I won't get into that right now, but um, just to go back on like what GSAs are. And I like that you brought up the uh, original acronym starting in the U S I believe um, at Lindsay Thurber, the club was actually called stop students and teachers opposing prejudice, I think was what it was originally called and kind of developed into a GSA and then developed from there. And I think that's the beauty of, 
of language and learning is that we're constantly evolving and changing it to be better reflective of the experiences of the people who are part of that group or the club. So when people are like, oh, that's too many, there are too many letters or the acronym's too long or this or that, it's like, well, you know, we're constantly evolving and learning new language. And if we can learn words like Googled and tweeted and Twitter, then, you know, I don't think that's a problem to learn what Two-Spirit is or or learn new words. So um, so GSA is just a, as a general, when I talk about them, I'm specifically talking about student-led and teacher-supported school clubs that serve as a space for 2S LGBTQ plus students and their allies So the acronym, again, I'm talking about two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, pan, demi, um, and everything in between. So I'm going to just shorten that all to my little acronym. (laughs) If people are like, what did you just say? That's what I'm talking about. But basically, yeah, the clubs are, are meant to serve students of all gender identities and sexual orientations, and they range in function. So I think the key part here is that there are spaces where students can sometimes just gather to eat lunch and socialize. Like I went to a GSA club once in a smaller community and I had met with tons of GSAs by at this point and some of them were doing, you know, organizing events and promoting to us LGBTQ plus awareness or sharing resources or creating bulletin boards of, of definitions, you know, that students could walk by in their halls and flip up the words and learn the definition. And then I came to this one school and I was like, okay, so, you know, what, what kind of activities do you do? And one student was like, we eat lunch. And I was like, heck yeah, you do. You eat lunch in a space where you're just having a nice time eating lunch. And the other student's like, yeah, it's just nice to eat lunch and just know that, you know, even if you don't talk to anybody else, they get you. You don't have to worry about homophobic, you know, crap basically and uh and it was just really cool because they were like our revolution is eating lunch in a space where we feel safe so that's why i say it's it really is no not a one-size-fits-all thing though they mostly operate during lunch hour i guess is the biggest commonality in a classroom sometimes most often the art classroom just because it's easier to do fun artistic things but it's usually like in some kind of homeroom of the teacher who's running it They all look very, very different in terms of like younger contexts. I've met with teachers who said, yeah, the grade six kids wanted a GSA. In that case, all of the GSAs that had been created in elementary schools were supported by parents of the students in the GSA. So if the kid was sort of navigating whatever they were, you know, the uh, young boy was wearing nail polish and was getting bullied and he's just like, I like nail polish, what's the big whoop? Then the parents were like, maybe we can have kind of a space to support. Or if there were like queer parents and the kid was being left out of family activities or something in a classroom setting. So in terms of younger youth and in terms of elementary school, these GSAs will look really different than let's say something in high school. So in my experience, youth are usually just like hanging out and chatting and maybe making like a giant art project where they add a little bit to it every day. But it's really just a space where a kid can talk about their two moms, for example, and no one flinches. And they're like, yeah, cool. Awesome. We also went to that movie with our parents, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas in high school, some students are putting on full presentations and like educating the staff at their school. So it's really varied. And just like teachers who are teaching subject matters to different grades, they adjust the subject matter to each grade. Teachers are smart and kids are smart. They're going to adjust and do whatever, wherever the kid is at. So that's sort of the nutshell, I would say.
Oh, that's fantastic. And so interesting. I think we often think about GSAs as supports that are meant for like high school students. And I think we've actually in Alberta seen some really cool things with more and more elementary and junior high GSAs. There's even teacher GSAs and basically those areas where folks just get to connect. So thank you for, for sharing about those different examples. Again, the GSA exists as this acronym that has become like sometimes politically charged and loaded. And I think just by talking about the actual experiences in a GSA, because many adults will not have the experience of going to a GSA as adults, it's really helpful to kind of understand the importance of them as spaces, places for well-being to be centered, whether that's just being able to eat lunch or whether that's well-being through the lens of like knowledge translation and knowledge mobilization. I, I think that's really fantastic. If you want to share with us, what does the research say about GSAs and and maybe even zooming in a little bit more, how does participation in these student-led clubs impact student mental health or peer interactions, family relationships for those 2S LGBTQ plus youth? This is a big question for sure. And um, researchers in many different countries have been looking at this for decades. From what I've read and what I've gathered, and I know this isn't Alberta specific, but I still think it's really interesting. Some American researchers who continue to do research to this day, they found that just different types of engagement that students had with their GSAs really changed how they felt in terms of feeling empowered, um, feeling you know peer validation, feeling self-advocacy and self-efficacy as well. And so some of the researchers looked at students who kind of just joined a GSA at the beginning of the year, and then they looked at students and asked them again after, at the end of the year, asked them questions about mental health. And what they found was that there was actually reduction in feelings of depression and anxiety um, across students, regardless of their identity. So regardless of whether they identified as 2SLGBTQ plus or, or an ally. And they also found that when Students had, you know, mental health discussions during GSA club meetings because sometimes students are navigating coming out to their families or or they're struggling to find maybe the, the right language to describe how they feel. And so when GSAs had productive and helpful mental health discussions, researchers found that that actually predicted lower depressive symptoms. And that is found across many different research papers and the literature has consistently shown that various involvements with the GSA, whether it's students attending the GSA or just students being in the school that has a GSA, has really positive outcomes for creating less homophobic environments, but also more positive feelings of greater safety for all students, even the students who didn't attend the GSA. It's tricky to research GSAs because Every single one is different. All the communities are different. There's different needs. But overall, researchers have found that students feel you know, a sense of hope. They feel social-emotional support. And just accumulating GSA resources, undertaking advocacy, all of this has such beneficial effects on students that even some researchers have studied students who have left high school and those beneficial effects still continue on when students go off to either work or go to university or college. And so these are kind of lifelong skills and support systems that help build self-esteem and and supportive environments. So even eating lunch can contribute to that. Um, So it it looks different. And so that's why it's really, it's really difficult to uh, describe like, well, what do they do? It's like what they need to do. 
if that makes sense. Well, that absolutely makes sense. I mean, I think the the research is is so profound in relationship to well-being. And I think my, yeah, my favorite thing is just like the study that you mentioned shows that all, like a whole school can be impacted by a GSA, even if a student doesn't even walk in the door of that GSA or participate, like they get to still experience the kind of reverberating positive impacts of that GSA. And yeah, that's just, that's really profound. And I think also we don't, view GSAs as an intentional school-based support for well-being. And I think that has to shift. Absolutely. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you wanted to share in terms of the research and kind of what the research tells us about the positive impacts of GSAs. Sometimes I like to just highlight some key studies. And there's a study done just over a decade ago that was kind of the pioneering GSA study where they had found it was a researcher named Toomey um, and, and their colleagues. So they found, again, like I'd mentioned, the presence of the GSA um, that was associated with greater self-esteem and attaining, you know, college level education, if that's a path for someone, lower substance abuse, lower levels of depression. And this was all found within um, LGBTQ plus students. Back then, they didn't mention uh, anything about uh, two-spirit folks. So um, that's why the acronym I mentioned is a little shorter for this one. But the important thing I want to highlight here is that even in their research, they found that If there were super high levels of school victimization, um, and if the environment at school was really, really bad, that tended to eradicate sort of the buffering effects of GSA participation on student depression and and even things as as far as suicide risk. So I want to talk about that because I think it's important to acknowledge that GSAs, while they are you know, amazing and awesome. I don't think an entire community can just rely on, okay, well, the kids have their GSAs. Our work here is done. We don't have to do anything else. No, it has to, you have to approach it holistically. Parents need to be supportive and gain the information and, and get involved. Teachers need to gain knowledge and do PD and, and community members, the folks at the grocery stores, grandparents, like it, it's so much bigger than that. Because once you get out into the community, you know, students in the summer not don't necessarily have that GSA space. So it's really important that although these spaces are awesome and students are working so hard to create these spaces, especially when they're sometimes in, in really unsafe situations. It's great. It's awesome. But it is an important thing to not just rely on students to be like, oh, they're so resilient. It's like, okay, now we need to create an environment where they don't have to be resilient, where they can eat lunch anywhere and not worry about that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think you also maybe make that direct connection for our listeners around why this matters, even if you're not a GSA support teacher. Like like you say, yeah, GSAs are fantastic, but we can't put all of our eggs in one basket, so to speak, and, and kind of expect youth then to be the drivers of whole system change that you're saying needs to happen to ensure that we're reducing instances and effects of homophobic and transphobic violence, which is not just peer to peer, but can also be something that comes from teachers or staff or community. So so that like whole community, whole school lens is incredibly important. And I appreciate you emphasizing that. My perspective is as a not teenager myself, as somebody who I never had the GSA at my school and I'm 34 years old. So obviously I've been out of high school for a long time. So I view my position as kind of getting out of the way of the students doing the work and doing the things that students need 
folks to do to help them continue being awesome. But I think that even as teachers, or like you mentioned, other community members, even if they're not involved, they can play a role in just not making it harder for youth and GSAs or just to us LGBTQ youth in general to live their lives. Oh, absolutely. Like we talk a lot on this podcast about the comprehensive school health framework, which can feel really massive, but really speaks to the whole school experience, right? Like a physical and social environments policy, which I think we can maybe steer our conversation into now. So Ah, there are, yeah, there's lots of roles that teachers can play. And maybe that's even an invitation in supporting GSAs, even if they're not a direct support teacher. But anyways, now on to maybe a a little bit more of the messy stuff. There's resistance to GSAs. We see this kind of debate, and we've seen it significantly in Alberta over probably the last six to 10 years. Um, But we're also seeing like incredibly extreme versions of GSA resistance or 2SLGBTQ plus resistance in in the US, especially in the context of schools with the don't say gay legislation that's targeting schools in Florida, the anti trans youth healthcare bills, you know, we've seen lots of legislative and policy changes about GSAs in Alberta over the last decade. And these have often taken place in the midst of very heated public debates. It's sad, because I think, honestly, like, unfortunately, queer youth are often held hostage in these political debates, right? And their access to or not having access to supports is really dependent on on the outcomes of those political decisions and, and debates. And, you know, in Alberta, we've heard GSAs being called things like ideological sex clubs. We see them being limited in, in school, some school settings, particularly faith-based school settings. And a lot of this has to come from the place of just like not knowing what GSAs are and myths around what they are. So maybe we can spend a little bit more time like challenging some of these myths or mm-hmm. or naming some of them even. I think it's important for us to understand those those different threads that comprise the fabric of the school landscapes that we work in. So what are GSAs not? I think that's kind of the, you know, it's a non-example. Like what are, what are they not? And how can they actually be a developmentally appropriate school-based support for students? Right, right. During my position as provincial GSA coordinator, I definitely had to talk about what they were not far more than I wanted to because I felt like I don't even want to give air to the kind of ridiculous claims, but, but people were concerned and people were misinformed and and that's valid. And I'm, I wasn't there to preach to the choir necessarily. Um, I was, you know, working to try to change and educate, I guess, like uh, groups of people who maybe just didn't really know. And so if somebody doesn't know about what GSAs are and they hear things like, oh, there's sexually explicit material being shown to youth. That was like a common one. They don't have any other background to be like, hmm, that doesn't sound like a GSA. They're just like, oh my goodness, how could they be doing this? So I think that piece specifically also stems from the confusion around changing all the bills. And what a lot of people and a lot of teachers, and this is really important for teachers to know, um, but a lot of people didn't obviously read the entire bill or the education act because who does that besides myself as my job but the important part was with bill 10 when it originally amended the education and school act so it, it amended both so this is applicable to today 
where Bill 10 took out a specific part of the legislation that said parental consent was required for any material that explicitly dealt with religion or sexuality. And then it took out the sexual orientation piece. So originally it said you need parental consent to talk about religion in class, like do a class on religion on human sexuality. So that's like STI, sex ed, body stuff, all of that stuff you need parental consent for. And prior to Bill 10, you also needed parental consent to talk about sexual orientation. So what Bill 10 did is it took sexual orientation out. And when you actually read the transcripts, which I totally did, because I'm a nerd about that, they're specifically talking about how sexual orientation was taken out because that's part of who a person is. So not being able to talk about the fact that one kid has two moms or or talking about, you know, Oscar Wilde and omitting the fact of his sexual orientation, that kind of piece was missing from education. But also it's like a basic human right to acknowledge the fact that queer, trans, two-spirit folks exist. And so when sexual orientation was taken out, People just now read it as religion and sexuality. But according to the Alberta government, sexuality is like the human sexuality, the physical, you know, genitalia and learning about bodies and and all of that stuff in sex ed. But people use the word sexuality to describe their sexual orientation. So I had to be really careful when I was traveling to use the Alberta definition, which is when I talk about lesbian, gay, bisexual, all that stuff, that's sexual orientation, not sexuality necessarily, according to the Alberta law. And so that's the tricky part is because, I mean, who who knows all of that stuff that I just said? Like, not, not a lot of people. And so then teachers were getting a little bit concerned about what they could talk about. And then they were getting concerned about what was considered sexually explicit material. Is sexual orientation sexually explicit? Obviously not. A kid being like, oh, I'm bi or I'm gay or I'm pansexual. That's just part of who they are. It's not, you're not talking about what they're doing in private. So I think that a lot of the language, the changing of the bills was very confusing, but it also added sort of more gas to the fire around what GSAs are not. And they're not spaces where we're teaching sex ed and like going into all of this specific stuff. Half the time they're talking about anime that I haven't seen, um, or they're singing musicals that I also don't know. So anyway, I, I just get like really into what they're not because it, it stems from a lot of confusion around the law and the law is sort of what keeps not only students, but teachers safe in knowing what they can do and what they can or can't be fired from doing. I think that piece is, you know, there's a lot of fear around that. And I, I, I just don't want fear and misinterpretation of the laws to prevent folks from from creating these safe spaces. So I think too, those pieces are so complicated. I think going back to what you said about the reference to human sexuality and religious content refers to like curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I think that health curriculum content of human sexuality is really what they're speaking to around parental consent, not kind of, yeah, sexuality in terms of identity. So I I appreciate you disentangling that language because also I, I think one of the issues is that we often tie sexual orientation to sexuality right? through that lens of like biology and reproduction, that kind of thing. So I really appreciate you kind of disentangling that and speaking to sexual orientation as identity community and far more than just those biological roots of human sexuality in things like genitalia and reproduction. Right. 
yeah, and talking about identity, like you said, doesn't mean we're talking about what they're doing. Exactly. And everybody has a sexual orientation. Exactly. Um, You're totally right. Like, this, the I think the student-led aspect of GSAs is fundamentally, like, what makes them developmentally appropriate. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, GSA clubs, like I said before, in elementary schools, half the time involves, like, coloring and making art. Or a kid can talk about their two dads, you know? So I think the fact that the students are driving it with what they need, that's what makes it developmentally appropriate. And that's where the teacher also comes in. So because we were getting into the weeds of some of that policy, the legislation, which is important because again, like that policy has, as you mentioned, really dictated the experiences of people on the ground. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe can you share with us where we're at right now? What are the rights that students have around GSAs? And what are the right and more so maybe responsibilities that teachers and schools have when it comes to GSAs in Alberta schools? Yeah, it's a whole messy messy time. So currently we have Bill 8, which came about, as I mentioned, in 2019. But since 2014, we've had bills that were constantly changing. I understand like it's it's a tricky thing to navigate um, for school administration. And then also parents want to know, I had mentioned, you know, Bill 10 removed topics of sexual orientation in class as a grounds for parental consent. And what I didn't mention was with Bill 10, basically had a lot of loopholes still. It was sort of a very porous, let's say, bill in that some schools could take advantage of the fact that you know, if a student asked for a GSA, they could just take forever to get back to them, or they could require students to have parental consent to attend the GSA, which would essentially out students and especially the students who needed it the most who weren't safe to inform their parents that prevented them from accessing these vital supports. So Bill 10 was a good step forward in a way, but the students were like, "Mm, schools are finding loopholes, this is not working. And after a ton of student, teacher and parent protesting in 2017, Bill 24 came in. And so that made the laws a little bit stronger around supporting to us LGBTQ plus students, and in the formation of GSAs. So now schools were required to form GSAs in a timely manner. So within I think it was like two weeks suggested or something like that. And that the schools had to find a teacher sponsor. So every every GSA had to have at least one teacher or school admin or school adult to help support it. And so that's where all of the kind of debate came to a head. Because one of the key pieces there was that teachers couldn't out kids. If a student was attending a GSA, a teacher couldn't just call home and say, Kate, your kid's in this GSA because that could really put some students in danger. In my experience, like a huge chunk of the students who attended GSAs, their parents already knew and parents would even come in and talk to me. And it was, you know, for the most part, but it was the students who were like, I'm not even ready. Some of them, they didn't feel like they weren't safe to come out. They were like, I don't know if I have the right language. I want to really feel supported in my community before I come out to my parents, because this is a big deal. And for youth, their relationship with their parents is a big deal. So a lot of that giving youth the space and the privacy to navigate their identity before they come out to their parents, if they choose to do so, that was also a big part of this. So you want to make sure that youth are being safe or they have a safe space. But You also want to give space to youth who are like on their way to come out to their family or just like navigating themselves. So 
basically Bill 24 provided that and it was really helpful. A lot of teachers were like, oh, thank goodness. I have a law where I can say to parents like, nope, I can't tell you if your child is in the GSA, you know, which essentially as parents, you should be able to have these conversations with your child. And if they don't feel safe telling you, well, that's not something to impose on a teacher, you know, and so teachers really like Bill 24, at least the ones I spoke to, because it gave them a little bit of safety where they they didn't feel forced to out kids. So when Bill 8 came around under the UCP government in 2019, it's very, very similar to Bill 24. Um, Schools have to create GSAs in a timely manner. They need the GSA teacher sponsors. But now it's up to the school staff. They have the responsibility of determining if parents are informed of a student's identity or GSA attendance. So a lot of the people who were fighting against student privacy in general, they were saying, well, what if the student is a threat to themselves or to another student? And that's usually where things like FOIP laws fall apart in terms of you have to inform a parent if their child is at any risk of harming themselves or others. But you can say that and not say, oh, and they're trans or and they're gay or and they're in the GSA, right? So pulling apart those two pieces and understanding that FOIP still applies to other parts of their lives was a key piece here. So now with Bill 8, the reason why so many teachers and students and community members and parents protested it is because it's making the waters murkier and making the responsibility, just putting a lot of that on teachers where they're like, well, now I have to navigate how safe this student is going to be. So so that's the background there. Um, so that's like the teacher rights piece. Whereas it, when it comes to the students' rights, they have a right to ask their school for a GSA club. Like I mentioned, they have a right to have a space to organize a teacher sponsor. And basically, most students just go up to a teacher they trust and they're like, hey, can we start this? <laughs> but also, there's also the FOIC. Students have a right to privacy and they should be able to attend GSAs without being outed. So that's where that tricky piece comes in. In the majority of cases, most GSAs I've worked with, they are in junior and senior high. So the vast majority are driving age. They're 14 years old. Some of them have their learners and they're driving cars. So they should have the right to privacy about their identity and decide who does and doesn't know. So that's just sort of the uh, my passionate spiel, I suppose. <laughs> But yeah, also so important. I think I'm similarly passionate about that. I think as a teacher actually experienced the negative outcomes of a student who was attending a GSA and didn't let their parents know they weren't quite ready. And unfortunately, they were accidentally outed. And what people don't understand is that, you know, maybe, I don't know, five times out of 10, nine times out of 10, there's a supportive parent and that student ends up getting the support that they need. But regardless, there are still those instances when, and and this was a case with this particular student where they were removed from the school, enrolled in homeschool and removed from all of their natural supports. So they experienced many layers of rejection. And of course, as you mentioned, you know, many youth, children and youth really care about what their parents think. And that's why it's so difficult when they're questioning to maybe have some of those conversations. And many times they will have really supportive parents and, and supportive caring adults are a huge protective factor for 2S LGBTQ plus youth. But then you have those students who don't have that. And now not only uh, like in this case that I speak to, because it's still just, it haunts you, right? As a, as an educator, this student 
was removed from their natural supports. And yes, it came, it probably came from a space of love and care from their parents, but the outcome was that they had less resources to support their well-being, whether that's through the lens of their queer and questioning identities, but also just the lens of like not having a school space where they had friends and caring adults and access to supportive activities and so on. So it is speaking to the importance of that Bill 24 and those protections as an educator. There are those stories where the most vulnerable marginalized students need that protection or need that time even like they just need that time to be in a place to have those conversations oh yeah I I appreciate your perspective because you you are you were a teacher you were in schools like you know better than I did and you were in an elementary school right correct yeah yeah k-9 school yeah right so I mean I'm sure some of these questions like you have more insight into you know developmentally appropriate things because you actually worked with those kiddos and And that's exactly why I'm like talking to the teachers or the people, the students who are actually theirs. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And those, those students have very different insights and needs too than even what teachers might assume. So it's right. It's really helpful lens as well. Yeah. I was like, I can start asking you some questions. (laughs) I'm always learning from, well, from you and from, you know, folks on the ground too. So Well, and likewise, and I think (laughs) laying out here like these responsibilities, it is really helpful because it is so messy. And and like you said, many folks do not have time to pour through the conversation, the legislation, let alone interpret it. Um, So so this is really helpful to kind of uh, give us an understanding of the landscape as it is and those, those rights and responsibilities and where things stand right now. On that note, I'm wondering... If there are any listeners who are, you know, teachers K to 12, and they're thinking about starting a GSA in their school, or, you know, maybe they've been approached to start a GSA or support students in starting a GSA. Is there anything that they need to know or like anything that would be helpful for them to know as they're looking to kind of establish this support or student led support in their context? <laughs> From what I, everything like that I've, I've gathered in terms of knowledge to share with teachers, you know, I want to acknowledge that it does come from the youth I've worked with, teachers, family school liaison workers, elders, grandparents, even meeting up with family members, you know, in High Prairie once we just had a backyard barbecue with a guitar around a fire with everybody and just kind of connected. So I wouldn't know any of this stuff without all of those folks doing the amazing on the ground work. So again, I'm sharing this with the voices of many people. This is not just Lauren's hot tips, um, because I've learned this from from everybody, but uh, a lot of students have have said, you know, number one, if teachers just lead by example, you know, introduce their pronouns, for example, if they make a mistake, they use the wrong pronoun or or something like that for a student, just move forward without making a huge deal, you know, constantly be aware that as a teacher, you're going to be learning, listen to youth, I'm always learning and, and listening. And when I make mistakes, I'm like, okay, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that, you know, telling someone they've done something wrong or, or made a mistake is even brave in itself. So I always appreciate when people say, actually, it's this, or like, you're a little bit wrong in saying it this way, or, or actually, you need to talk about things with this language. So I think approaching as teachers, my, my advice, I suppose, uh, would be approach supporting GSAs with support, but also humility. 
students will tell you what they need. Not being a teacher myself, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt, but this is what, what students are telling me. You know, I always say, if I'm going to go talk to a bunch of teachers now, what would you want me to tell them? And they're like, make sure this, this space is safe for students to share their experiences, yet balance really triggering discussions with ways that students can have hope or a way out of a dark place if they get stuck, you know, have resources on standby. I know teachers are tapped, like being a a GSA teacher sponsor is an extra thing on top of prepping courses and teaching all day and, you know, like, and marking things and all of that stuff. So make sure that you also have support as a teacher. This could be, you know, talking with the school counselor. Often the school counselor is part of the GSA, I find, but if they're not, making sure that students have a connection with the school counselor, remove as many barriers as possible for students to reach out for resources or, you know, if you share um, crisis hotlines or having guest presentations, just making sure youth know they have many different venues to go to because, some dark stuff can happen and students need to talk about it, but that can also be pretty triggering for other students. So navigating that is a tricky thing. So not shutting down discussions, but also not letting it go to a place where like it just overwhelms other students. So it's a tricky thing for sure, um, but having that space is important. And I also think documenting GSA activities and sharing them, like putting them in a newsletter, letting parents and other community members know what your GSA is doing, because then they can learn and get ideas. Part of the Alberta GSA network is we put a blog together and and you share great resources and other communities and other GSAs could get that information. But then also, it's not like the GSA is hiding anything. They're saying, hey, we did this awareness campaign, or we made cupcakes for this day, or we did pink shirt day, put it in the community school letter, parents can read about it, and parents can learn about it. And maybe you know, even teaching parents a little bit about what GSAs are and how they can incorporate some of those discussions in their own homes, right? Or, or learning for themselves. So having that permeating piece to it, because ultimately when kids are in their GSAs and they go home, there's, there's always a connection there. And so making sure that that connection is supported. So those are sort of some of the things that I've been, you know, told by students and one of the many times I cried during my <laughs> position out of joy was um, I had one student who from a small town, like under 30,000, I think it's even under 20,000 population. They had come into their own identity and were like, um, do other people, do other gay people exist? Which I was like, I can't believe we're everywhere. We're here. Like, <laughs> But the student, really, that was their experience. So then they heard about GSAs. They started one in their junior high, and then they started attending one in their community because another student from another high school had started a community GSA. And then this junior high student created this amazing club, was super organized. I came to visit, and uh, they had, like, a full poster of, like, GSA, you know, rules, like, don't be rude and, like, all these cute things. And then they ended up having the support and knowing they had the support system from their teacher and from their their GSA. And then they came out to their family and then their family was supported. And they sent me this email and I'm like bawling on my laptop being like, oh my gosh, this kid is incredible. So I'm just sort of like adding that little story in there because as teachers, you're going to sort of just be like, what's happening? Guess we're going, here's, here's the wave. We're going to ride it. Um, and just like, you know, do your best to be genuine and, and honestly just step back and learn and and students can tell when you're honestly trying. I love when students are like, oh, they're trying <laughs> um, when they talk about their teachers. So 
so yeah, that's a, a little bit, I don't know if I kind of trailed off here, but there's just so, so much that I feel like I really hope that with my research, I can create really tangible, helpful resources and, and updated ones, especially with COVID that had just, I mean, that's decimated lots of GSA support. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. to be continued. For sure. Well, I, I think that's fantastic too. Like, I think youth are not asking for a, a lot, but like you mentioned, like we just listen to, to what they ask for. And, and sometimes as teachers, we in, in our intent to help sometimes get in the way. And I think listening to what those youth want and, and what they want for their GSA is, is also super important because sometimes you will support a GSA that just wants to have space to eat lunch and you mm-hmm. might, as a teacher, be like, let's change the world. Like, let's make this happen. <laughs> um, but it's not about you. Yeah, it, it's about yeah. those youth. And, and so, like, really, really listening and, and creating that space, I think, um, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Now, of course, you've traveled all over the province and you probably have some really fantastic stories from your experience. I'm wondering if maybe you can just share some examples of how students and staff through GSAs have been transforming their schools or even, you know, like their school systems. Right. Definitely a lot of stories. Um, and I, I'll probably just speak very generally because sometimes like the, these stories fuel me in my work and conversations with folks. Um, but sometimes I, I need to remind myself, like these aren't necessarily my stories to tell, but the essence of the story I'm happy to share and of what course. I've learned from the story for sure. So I always think about, you know, the, like I already talked about the student who emailed me and I just started crying because they were like, I've gone from literally thinking I'm alone to creating a space in my school to coming out to my family. But also what was really important was conversations about who isn't at the GSA, who doesn't feel comfortable being at the GSA and what information is missing. So talking about the lands that we're meeting on, talking about the history of Two-Spirit indigenous queer folks that have existed like you said at the beginning long before the colonization of turtle island so also talking about that and and sort of i think as teachers acknowledging what's missing and that talking about racism and homophobia and transphobia they can't be done separately if that's the experience that one youth is facing multiple things that intersect like the you know classic intersectionality Kimberly Crenshaw's theory. So how do you bring all of that, you know, what sounds very academic and stuffy and then bring that into like a GSA space? So I found that some students, you know, were struggling like, okay, well, why are we talking about, you know, racism as well? Whereas other students were collaborating with other groups and social justice groups to address like an intersectional space. So it looks different in every single community for sure. So um, that story I always like want to want to be mindful of because in my experience, predominantly GSAs in Alberta and rural Alberta were predominantly like white students for the most part. And so I think just reflecting on that and asking why or what GSAs can do to be a space where everybody feels welcome and not just to talk about their sexual orientation or their gender identity, but also how racism and how all of that plays into that and and also the history of colonization. So thank you for sharing those stories and a lot to learn from those experiences. And I imagine you probably have so many more stories Uh, and I could, I could talk on and on uh, with you because I like, obviously this is something that's really close to home and important for me. 
but I will, I will just throw one more question your way. I know it's probably not a quick question, but um, <laughs> what could a teacher, maybe who's listening, whether they're pre-service or in-service teacher, what, what is one thing a teacher could do tomorrow to support a GSA, either in establishing a GSA or supporting one that already exists in their school and school community? Oh, good question. I mean, you can say more than one thing. You can you can give people some options. You can give people some options. One thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess again, it sort of depends on like where the GSA is at. Um, Sometimes I get teachers who say, "Well, can we just start a GSA without a student asking for it?" And I'm like, "Ah, of course, yeah, absolutely." Like, there's no law saying you can't start one if students don't ask for one. If there's no GSA in the school, other teachers who I've learned from have said, you know, what we did is we just created kind of a fun poster that says like GSA club meeting will be in this room at, you know, lunch on Tuesdays. And then the teacher will just chill in their whatever homeroom or whatever it was and have lunch, even if no one showed up for months. And they were like, this is just going to be here when somebody needs it then they can access that. And so so if there's nothing, even just starting from there, and then if you want to be a superstar teacher and start to take on the lead of maybe learning and then educating your fellow staff members at staff meetings, like a little sprinkle of PD kind of thing, while you're waiting for students to kind of come by and, and potentially get involved with the GSA, or even having like guest speakers come in. There are a lot of amazing organizations that travel or that video conference in and do education. For example, the Altview Foundation, there's um, the Firefly in Schools program, and there, there's like many programs. And even even staff sometimes just know a lot, and then they, they get another staff member to come in and share their knowledge. So that would be my kind of advice, I guess, for a nothing exists here yet kind of thing. Again, always addressing the community at large is helpful. Um, but if, if there's already a GSA, and this is something I come across a lot, students are just like, they kind of want to do stuff, but they don't want to organize it. And a teacher has a lot going on and they have all these amazing ideas. They're like, we're going to do a dance and then a drag show and then this and then that and then have cupcakes. And, and so maybe just sort of honing in on tangible things and taking a little bit more of the boring planning background stuff. Like one time a GSA planned a pride prom dance but they didn't know they needed all this paperwork to do it at the school. There were so many bureaucratic things they had to do that they had just no idea. So that I would say like for the teacher, kind of navigating the parameters of what you can rent out or even like legality of hosting something after, you know, like all of that stuff, um, I think. And just being that support system where the students want to do this thing. Okay, how do I actually do it? What approvals do I need? What kind of stuff do I need for my school? So those kinds of things. And then just having even one or two sort of goals that they can focus in on that, you know, pick one or two of the ideas that students have been excited to share, and sort of go towards that. And then each GSA meeting, there's like a little bit of direction if folks want. And then at the end, they can see sort of the fruition of this, you know, little by little work that they've been doing. So in some cases, for example, um, at a junior high in Lacombe, they were creating their QSA flag. So they had steps towards creating that. So it really depends. (laughs) I'm like trying not to list 50 things. But yeah, it depends. Depends on the person. 
But I, I do really appreciate that. And I am also just going to kind of reiterate that point, because I think when it comes to legislation around GSAs, the wording is like, you know, if a student requests it, you have to provide it. And then the de facto kind of understanding is, oh, a student must request it in order for us to provide it. And that is, has mm-hmm. been a huge barrier uh, in GSAs. I mean, like, we don't force students to request a volleyball team. It's provided and students are invited. Right. That kind of really stuck out as an awesome starting place for communities because you don't have to put it on the student to create the GSA. Like you said, you can create the space and when students are ready, they will come. And if not, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with providing supports and having them there just in case. So I really, I really appreciate that you laid that out for folks because that is a beautiful starting place for those communities that don't have anything. I also, I'm not a paperwork person, but I also think it is important for that role to be played by educators (laughs) in in those environments. So totally makes sense. Um, Well, (laughs) this is fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I think folks have an idea of what they can do, you know, tomorrow, Monday, whatever the case is to support GSAs in their schools. And thank you again, Lauren, for your time, your expertise and sharing your experiences and stories, what you've learned. We're really excited to be able to learn from your research as it comes together over the next few years. Yeah, thank you for having me on this really cool podcast. And if folks ever do want to reach out or they want resources or they're like, I don't remember what you said that one time, but can I have some of whatever that was? They can always email me and I'm sure you can put the email somewhere. Brilliant, <laughs> yeah. <just> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I'm all about sharing the resources. So I, I don't want folks to be like, well, now I don't know where to go. It's like, there are many ways Um, and many people that I can point you to. So um, again, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I was smiling and nodding the whole time when you're talking. (laughs) Well, thank you. And we will put in the show notes where folks can reach out to you. And and you also mentioned the Provincial GSA Network. That website is still live and there's still really great resources. So I think we'll include that and some more resources as well for our listeners. Thank you, folks, for joining us again for another episode of The Pod Class, a podcast from Everactive Schools that works to inspire educators with ideas for happy, healthy classrooms. A special thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at Everactive Schools, or you can visit our website at everactive.org for more great content and resources. But until next time, The Pod Class is dismissed. <laughs>